Hello and welcome to Working Historians, a podcast series about what historians do with their lives. I am Rob Denning, Associate Dean of Liberal Arts at Southern New Hampshire University's Global Campus. Today is October 30th, tomorrow is Halloween, Tuesday is Election Day, and then if you can believe it, we will still have two more months of 2020 after that, so who knows what will happen next. But hey, that's a long-term problem. A short-term solution to 2020 is to listen to another interview with a historian about their work and their careers. So let's talk to a historian. Rolling through my handy Rolodex of historians, I've found Scott Black, a history professor at multiple institutions, including SNHU. Today, Scott and I will talk about his academic and professional background, his teaching career, and his interest in a topic that we haven't discussed much in this podcast, historical fiction. What is your name and what do you do? Uh, my name is Scott Black. I am an adjunct professor at SNHU and at two other colleges, Buffalo State College and Erie Community College. Primary history. Great. And before we get too much into your uh, jobs there, can we talk a little bit about your academic and professional background? Uh, where where'd you come from? Well, I originally started after high school in the military. I spent four years in the Navy on a submarine. Uh, then I went to two years of the New York State National Guard in an armored division driving a tank. Uh, then I went to uh, SUNY Fredonia, which is uh, uh, SUNY College in southern western New York, right near the uh, Erie, Pennsylvania border. And I majored in economics and political science there. Uh, after that, though, I got married and I uh, became a financial advisor for 10 years working for Payne Weber, uh, but then we had three kids and, you know, working for, as a financial advisor, you spend a lot of time at night and on the weekends out, you know, getting clients or meeting with clients. So instead of doing that, I wanted to spend more time with my family. So I decided to go back to school. I went to Buffalo State College and I majored in history because really my wife and I sat down and we talked about what I really like to do instead of you know, choosing something just for the job and the paycheck. You know, we'd rather, you know, do something that I, I love to get up in the morning and go do. And, you know, when I get home, I'm not miserable. So mm -hmm. I chose history. And I concentrated in American history. And then after that, I went to the University of Buffalo to start my PhD. But at the same time, I was working for the federal government. I started being an adjunct at Buff State. So, you know, right after my first year, Working on my PhD, I pulled out so I could spend more time with my family and you know do the other two jobs, and that's you know leads me to where we are now. All right. And when you were working on your um, degrees, what uh, what were the research topics that you were interested in? Well, when I was at Buff State, I focused mainly on you know the American Revolution or the early Republic, and my master's thesis was John Jay's mission of, to Spain during the Revolutionary War. And uh, I said it was a uh, case of futility trying to get the Spanish as an ally of the Americans because obviously Spain as a monarch didn't really want to support a colony separating from a, another monarchy. So they eventually did get into the war, but they joined as an ally of France in not recognizing U.S. independence or you know the colonies at all until after the peace treaty of 1783. And then when I was at University of Buffalo, 
since I worked for the federal government, I worked in the Department of Homeland Security. My focus was going to be uh, the impact of domestic terrorism in the United States during uh, the 1877 and 1919 period. And I was looking at anarchy and with the uh, labor unions and the bombings. And I, I, I didn't decide if I wanted to focus on anarchy more in terms of labor unrest and using violence to gain what they wanted or shift over to you know the, the rebirth of the Klan after World War I and using domestic terrorism to you know keep a set of ideals that they believed in that were american or american patriotic ideals um and be anti-immigration and you know also anti-black and anti-minority um so i was trying to balance between those two uh, but they led me to teach you know terrorism classes as an adjunct so even though i never finished it i did spend a lot of time and i taught terrorism for the the federal government for a little while. That's an interesting topic. Um, I was wondering, did you ever read, um, I think it's Beverly Gage's The Bombing of Wall Street or The Wall Street Bombing. I forget exactly what the title is, but it has a pretty nice summary of the historical events around uh, terrorism in basically focusing on the Gilded Age era, kind of the area that you're talking about here, but right. it's talking about things like mail bombings and, um, you know, the bombing of the, uh, I think it was the, the governor of Idaho who got killed by a mailbox bomb. Um, right. It's an interesting book if you haven't checked that out, but it's got, it's got a really nice kind of summary of that, of that, a lot of that scholarship. There was a lot of stuff, particularly with the Mitchell. The, you know, yeah. Yeah. In, in terms of what he was trying to correct down on in the response by a lot of these, a lot of them weren't U, U.S. citizens doing it. They're immigrants that came in. They were you know, trying to gain more rights from a labor standpoint, um, but still haven't become citizens yet and getting involved in that stuff. And the IWW also during that time period um, with you know the miners and stuff. You know, I, I read a lot on it, but I probably haven't done anything on terrorism for seven years. Mm-hmm. You know, because I teach so many classes. Yeah. You know, that I've just gotten away from that. I have other focuses now, too. So I, I seem to get bored after a couple of years <laughs> of researching. Like, you know, after I did my master's thesis on John Jay, you know, I really don't want to read any more about John Jay. <laughs> <laughs> no, I understand. And when I finished my dissertation, I had no desire at all to, <laughs> to look at it again. And every few years I'll go and crack it open to think maybe I should try to convert it to a book or something. But yeah. I just, it just doesn't appeal to me at all. So I, I understand. My favorite thing is when you submit it and you think you're done and they give it back to you with corrections and ideas on making it stronger or weaker, you know, taking things out. And, right. And with a panel of three people, you might have two people to favor one part and one doesn't. So then you got to balance them all and try to satisfy everybody and ensure you're still you know, meeting your argument. It's like politics. You, you, you compromise. Right. You give a little bit to one person, a little bit to the other and. Try to make everybody happy. Right. And eventually everyone walks away. Nobody's happy, but that's the goal. <laughs> that is the goal. <laughs> Finishing is the goal. So what other topics have you been into recently? Well, I have an interest in archaeology. So I, I do, because I teach an ancient history class, you know, I do a lot of that, looking at you know old archaeological dig sites and seeing what they've done, uh, what evidence they've brought forward and in their interpretation of the evidence to help 
you know, especially teaching the time period. Um, and then my two main history areas that I focus on outside of that is really the Civil War and World War II. And I do a lot of reading on those because one of the things I'm doing now is trying to get into using my research to create historical fiction. You know, instead, okay. instead of just writing, you know, a thesis on a topic, you know, particularly when you start looking at the Civil War and there's so much written on it. And even World War II, there's so much written on it. You know, unless you have access to new materials uh, or new materials have come out that, you know, maybe bring a different insight into something, it's hard to come up with a different view of things. And I found them trying to work on these two projects. It's a lot harder to do it than just writing a, you know, a thesis or a, a paper on the topic, because not only do you have to understand the history, but you also have to understand the time period and the language and how people act and respond to each other. You kind of have to get an idea of the weather, because if somebody reads it, that's a history buffer from the area. You know, if you have one thing off, it destroys everything for them. You know, and you're, you're developing characters and personalities and, you know, you got to research the newspapers for that time period you're getting into. It just seems a lot harder than even writing my master's thesis because there's so many things that go into it. Without a, a you know, fictional writing background, I spend a lot of time, you know, doing podcasts and watching videos and learning how to write as well because it's a lot different than writing a historical version of things. There's actually kind of a two, two layers of effort there. Is one is the historical research to try to build the world accurately. Yeah. But then you also have to think of the actual story of the, of the fiction that can be, that just, just adds a whole other layer to it. Um, I, I have huge respect for people that are able to do historical fiction well because they kind of have to do two different things. You've got to do the imaginative uh, story building but right. you also have to, for the most part, you have to make it fit in a world that already existed. I mean, there's speculative fiction. You can create all kinds of historical storylines and you can make stuff up. But if you want to make it accurate, then you have to, then the story is going to be constrained by the actual events. And I can imagine that must be a difficult, that's, that's a difficult thing to reconcile. You spend a lot of time whiteboarding, really, because as you build out these stories, you have to double check to make sure they fit in. To the historical narrative you can't you don't have 100 percent creative you know liberties because you are confined to the actual events that took place and, and then you're starting to think like you know i'm getting into a period of time it's right after shiloh you know and it's right before people are hearing about shiloh so as i'm getting into my story when do they find out and what is the impact of them finding out you know on what they're doing other than that, and I'm getting into secret societies and what secret societies were there and how much contact did they have with other ones and also the political process and what kind of resources do they have and how impactful could they have been, you know, and how much can you stretch that, you know, without making it unrealistic. And because, you know, you could great, create a great fictional story, you know, and just use the historical background to be there. But if you want it accurate, it, it's a lot harder. And that's what I'm trying to get into now. And I'm trying to work two at a time. 
So I'll do one for a few days and I'll go off. And one of the things, you know, obviously we use Chicago and Turabian for the historical style and how to develop things and create things. But I also use Stephen King wrote a book uh, um, titled On Writing. And it basically laid out how he works every day. You know, he might sit down and start writing about a character, put it away in a file. You know, he might not pull it off for another year. But he keeps a file of all the characters and the personalities they have. And he might be writing a story and all of a sudden he thinks, you know, I need somebody for this. You know, go back to the file system and start looking through them. And he'll he'll have them classified as, you know, different personalities, different heights, weights, activities, you know, all these other things. Um, So it's a lot easier. And that's what I'm trying to do now is, you know, what is the city like in 1862? You know, build up that a little bit. And then maybe, you know, what are some of the characters, what are some of the historical characters there that maybe I run into? Or maybe that I can introduce briefly into the storyline and just start building that up. And then once you get all these pieces together, it's like a puzzle and you start piecing them out. It's like, remember when you went to college and you did your research on index cards? You sit down with each index card when you're trying to put the paper together. And I used to do it on the floor and I'd have them color coded toward topics and I'd start moving them around. Where can I put this and make this better? And you take things out and you put them in different places. That's what I'm doing now, but I do it on a whiteboard and I do it in uh, OneNote, Microsoft OneNote, and just continually try to build. And at the same time, you know, start timelining the story out too. So you can't just do all the background research. You got to, you know, how much time do you spend on that while you're teaching? You know, like right now I teach seven classes. Right. So, but I, yeah, there's not a whole lot of time left over. Yeah, I don't sleep a lot though. So, <laughs> voluntarily or otherwise. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, three so when, is, it takes a lot of time. So, yeah. So, when you're doing this research for a historical fiction type uh, project, where do you start? Do you go with, uh, if you're looking for the historical uh, events of a small town or something, do you just start looking through newspapers? What types of sources do you use to, to build that world? Well, I have a pretty good library. So if I'm, you know, sticking in like the Civil War, I have a lot of the stuff that was published during the Civil War, you know, the military records. Uh, plus you have it, the, the entire War for Rebellions online, you know, the, all the historical records from that. So I start with that. I see who is in that time period that is where we know. And then I start looking and see, like I have all the Civil War Times magazines, you know, all the Civil War books that were written, not all of them, but a lot of them that were written after the war that have been reproduced over time. And then I start looking at, you know, into the primary source documents and see if I can find letters by people that were from there or that lived there and, you know, read those and get tidbits out of those. And then I'll look at, you know, the historical societies and see what they have. You know, do they have a map? You know, do they have a newspaper? And, you know, does the newspaper tell you what the weather is and all these other things? You know, because a lot of these towns, particularly the bigger ones, you know, still have records, you know, from all the newspapers that were printed. And most of them are digitized. So you can, you know, a lot of them are accessible. And if they're not, you know, one of the librarians at the three schools I work at will, you know, try to get them for me. So, I mean, there's a lot of people that assist you in it. Because obviously I don't have every resource available 
Um, but there is so much online now. So you just got to dig, you know, like if I know that I'm going to be running across a regiment, you know, I'll look who is the commander of the regiment. And I'll look at the people in there and then I'll start searching the people, you know, and see how many letters are available for each individual. You know, and I might not go all the way down the line through every single person in the regiment, but if I can get five or six people that there are repositories of their letters, you know, and I can get access to them somehow, you know, that gives me enough information to build up an idea of what the town is like. And, and that's what, you know, I try like in class, you know, when we do a research project and somebody's researching, you know, the, the 19th Amendment or, you know, some odd thing, you know, don't just focus on that. Focus on the things around it, the bigger things as well. And look at all the people that are around it. You know, if you want to research Lucy Burns, you don't just research Lucy Burns. You research Alice Paul and, you know, other women suffragists and, you know, because they all communicate or talk about each other. You know, so you can gain information from them, even though they're not directly related to what you're focusing on. So that's what I do. And it's a lot of research. Mm-hmm. Luckily, I like it. But <laughs> Yeah. And that's a lot of the same research that you do for a straight, you know, nonfiction history project also. It's, it's a lot of the same effort. So you're doing... So basically the skills that you learned as a historian, I mean, you're, you're still like using all the same skills in the same ways. It's just, like I said, you then, you then have to go that one step further and create an actual compelling, maybe fictionalized storyline that you can kind of put on top of the history that uh, um, will draw the reader in and all that. Oh, absolutely. I, I think it's, it's kind of like having two jobs with one result. Yeah. yeah because the research is identical. You know, to what you do, just, you know, you might want to go in more depth about things or, you know, the background information and things like that. Um, but, you know, if you're writing a larger paper, you know, you're going to do a lot of the same things anyways. You know, you're not, you're not going to rely on one person, one source. You know, you need as many as possible to have it as impactful as possible. And that, that was one of the things I did well in grad school, too. I always out-researched everybody. You know, because when they tell you you need a minimum of 10 sources, I would have like 30. Because there's always something that seems to be missing. You know, not 10 sources is good, but is it enough? You know, especially if you're trying to create something that's kind of new or impactful. And, you know, you you always have to go above and beyond. At least I think that. I think you, you need to constantly be trying to push the envelope a little bit further. Because otherwise, it's the same thing everybody else does. Yeah, and that's a conversation that I often have with students when I'm teaching capstone courses, where they're making this the, a first large-scale history project. Is that there's always more sources to find. There's always more data to build, and you just one of the skills of the historian that you kind of have to practice is knowing when can I stop? Because <laughs> at some point, you actually write the project. You can spend the rest of your life collecting all of the primary sources and doing the research, looking through archives and all that. But at some point, you have to stop and actually write the project or the book or the article or whatever it is in order to have something to not, not something to show for it. Because, I mean, collecting things is can be its own reward, but the, the final project that other people can can grab onto and and how it becomes useful to other people is through the product that you create. And so knowing when 
you can do that is it is you never know because there very well could be some amazing things out there that you just haven't stumbled on yet and if you give it another year maybe you would find it but you don't you don't know that and so it's kind of hard to uh know when you can do that and then of course once you've actually written the book or whatever and handed it off to the publisher or whatever it is you do with it you still run the risk three months later of finding an amazing new stash of sources that that would have really helped that project that you just didn't know about it and that's why you always have books that come out you know second you know edition or third edition and there's revisions mm -hmm. you know yeah and that's what i tell students too i go you know you can do all the research you want but you still have deadlines you know, it's right. just like a job. You know, your boss wants you to have this done by Friday at noon. You can't say, you know, I'm still researching it. Well, if you're still researching, I'm going to give it to somebody else to do it. You know, somebody that will get the job done when it has to be done. This is no different. You know, if you're trying to write a paper or, you know, a story or something for a magazine, they have deadlines. You know, mm -hmm. and it's the same thing with, you know, page requirements and things like that. You know, if they tell you 25 pages. And you give them 30, they're not even going to look at it, you know, because it's right. not going to fit in the space they have in the magazine or the journal or wherever. And they're going to send it back to you. And, you know, if they even give you comments, you know, they'll tell you it's got to be, you know, 25 pages. We can't do anything with this or we'll put it off until we have a journal that's, you know, on the same topic, you know, down the road. But by that point, somebody else has already done something on it. Yeah. And that's why you tell, you know, all these classes read the rubrics you know if we tell you to do it one way you know don't deviate from it because there's a reason for that and it, you might not see the reason today but you know if you had a job your boss might have a reason for it you know and you can't question him constantly you know so do what you're supposed to do and try to get things moving along yeah because there, there could be the boss may have all kinds of uh, justifications for doing weird things and the boss also may have no justification for their demands but it's still the boss's demand <laughs> so you have to do it the way the boss wants you to do it or you're not going to get paid so okay. that's it yeah. yeah and then especially when you teach like 100 and 200 you know where you know the majority of people aren't history majors you know and they're just taking it to take it or you know they always put in the comment you know i want to learn more how to research or you know, how to develop things. Well, this is part of developing it. Meeting time, time deadlines and requirements are part of doing things. You know, you get in the real world, you don't have the freedom to do whatever you want. Yeah. You know, so you, you have to be adaptable to that. Great. So those are, that, that sounds like a really interesting project. How far along are you on those projects? Are they, uh, uh, should I be expecting to see a copy in my uh, <laughs> mailbox anytime soon? Or what's the plan with that? Yeah, the research part, my, my plan is, my wife doesn't retire for 12 more years. I want to have at least one or two done by then. Yeah. Because again, I don't have a ton of time. Yeah. So I try to fit it in. And what I do is I schedule an hour every day to work on something. And, you know, I have two that are more historical fiction and one's more of a science fiction type of thing where I don't have to stay in, you know, the total historical part of it. I mean, yeah, parts of the storyline you do, but after that, forget it. So it depends on which one seems to be progressing more. Like mm -hmm. the one I'm working on now, you know, I'm focusing on the great train um, chase, you know, that took place in 1862 where they captured the general, the Confederate train, and they were trying oh, to get yeah. yeah, and I'm using that, and I'm deviating from that is that Andrews, the spy, also learned that there was going to be this hoard of gold on the train. 
And what he wants to do is steal that and, you know, get it out to Indiana to help fund the secret societies in Indiana that are trying to, you know, overthrow the Indiana government, free the Confederates and, you know, start the Civil War out there, too, or expand the Civil War out there, too. And eventually they join up with the Knights of the Golden Circle. Oh. And and they actually do. So there's some of the storyline is true, but I'm deviating because the great the train chase had nothing to do with it. Yeah. You know? right. So and I'm not going to use Andrews because Andrews was a union loyalist, even though he was a spy. So you got to create somebody else to fit in that. And there's 24 people that went on the mission. You know, so I'm thinking of another spy that would found out this information convince Andrews to go tell Buell, you know, that we need to destroy the railroads, steal this train, you know, disrupt the the communication and transportation abilities of the Confederates. And at the same time, the other guy's going to want to steal this gold and have a network throughout the whole thing. So I'm working on that now. That's probably the thing that I'm furthest along with. Yeah. And then the other one, I, I'm working on a World War II submarine adventure. Yeah. Okay. Because I was a submariner, so I think there's a lot of things you could do with that. Particularly, you know, all these submarines that were constantly being depth charged and, you know, trying to be ran by Japanese ships. You know, I have them being depth charged and, you know, most of them, you know, seem like they all black out. And then they end up appearing on an island or, you know, on a bar or a sand reef outside the island. So I'm just starting to develop that and what happens on the island dealing either with the Japanese soldiers there or, you know, dealing with something else. I haven't decided where I want to go. Well, that's great. Yeah. Like I said, I look forward to uh, seeing the publication at some point. Cause that sounds really cool. Yeah. I'll bring it to you when I come in April. I'll just stop teaching my classes for a month. Right. Yeah. Wait a minute. <laughs> I, I, I can't approve that. <laughs> I don't think my wife would approve that either. So. Probably not. <laughs> She'll support you, but only so far. Exactly. <laughs> and the, actually, you're, you mentioned the secret societies, and this is totally off topic, but it's something that just amused me, is that at one point, uh, a couple of months ago, I was in the um, the Ohio History, um, they, call it, they call it the Ohio History Connection, which is basically the State Historical Society in Columbus. Right. And I was looking old city directories from the 1890s and it's it's just it was just amusing because in those city directories they would have entire chapters dedicated to listing all of the secret societies that existed in columbus at that point right so it would give like their um you know the street address their they didn't have phone numbers at the time but the ways to contact the uh, the people who was in charge when their meeting dates were <laughs> so and there was a lot of them yeah, there were dozens of them. And so, yeah, you flip through them and they'd be like, you know, they meet at such, such bar the third Tuesday of every month at 7 p.m. <laughs> like, and they would have like unique yeah, things you know? where you could identify the members if you didn't know them. Right. Yeah, it's just <laughs> yeah, exactly. yeah, secret society was basically just an alternative word for like social club, basically, in those days, I think. Yeah, like the Odd Fellows or, you know, one mm -hmm. of these other groups that came about during that time. Yeah, and, and really, it was you know an outlet. You know, like politics was an outlet. They would go meet, talk about politics and business, and get away from their wives and families and drink, and just have an excuse to be out. You know, it was a it's to relieve some of the pressure of 
you know, during that point, a, a new nation that's just getting into industrialization. Yeah, going through really dramatic changes, industrializing economy, the post-Civil War, type, type of turmoil. Yeah, it's, it isn't too surprising that people would look for outlets of ways to try to maintain some sort of sanity in their lives. <laughs> <laughs> All right, and so uh, that's really cool. So I'm, uh, those are really good, interesting topics. I haven't talked to, I think you're the first person I've talked to in this podcast is actually engaging in, in historical fiction, and that's really cool. And I'm, okay. uh, thank you for... Uh, talking about that a bit because it's it's one of those things that is always an option for historians to do, but not many of us try it because I think a lot of us are just scared of the fiction part of it. <laughs> we're raised to, or we're, we're tr- we have such training in recreating the nonfiction part of it that going beyond that is is kind of terrifying because it is terrifying, and that's why trained to I spend a lot of time trying to learn about that. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. Um, and that's, yeah, so yeah, that's really cool. I'm glad you're glad you're doing that. Um, so when you finished your uh, grad school, um, you, you mentioned that you kind of went straight into teaching. Um, how did how did you break into the teaching, the teaching field? Were you just tossing out applications for jobs? Or did you have a strategy? How did you get into the uh, get into the career? Well, I won uh, two awards at Buff State for researching and writing while I was there. So when I was done or starting to finish my master's degree in you know, planning on going to UB for my doctorate, I was still working at the federal government. So I went to the chair and I said, is there any way I could teach as an adjunct? And he said, sure. <laughs> so that yeah. was my whole process. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I've been there ever since. And I've always had a full load. And I, I could have dropped that and focused on the PhD and, you know, went to the federal government, used my benefits there. But the benefits for an adjunct in the SUNY system are so good that they, you know, being part-time adjunct was better benefits than a full-time federal employee. So, really? yeah. So, oh, wow. So I, I decided, you know, I better stay here. Plus you're eligible for the pension. So now I retired from the federal government. So I have a federal pension. I'm vested in the state pension. So when I retire, I got two full pensions that I could draw if they're still around then. But, <laughs> you know, in, in a time period where no one has pensions anymore, yeah, you know, I have two sets of permanent income coming in. And then, you know, as your needs and stuff change, you know, you have your 401ks and 403bs and stuff like that. But at least yeah. you always have that baseline. So no matter what happens, you always have money coming in. So, I mean, it brings a lot of comfort when you start thinking about retirement planning that regardless of how bad the economy is one year, you can still rely on, you know, seeing 50, 60 percent of your income that you made while you were working. Mm-hmm. So, so I never left. And then, you know, after being there for a while is when I started looking around, you know, I'm retiring from the federal government. You know, I don't want to get a, just a regular job. I'd rather just teach more. But because I never finished my PhD, I couldn't teach full-time, so I started looking for other adjunct positions. And that's where I found New Hampshire and then Erie Community College. And so you said you're you're teaching seven classes now. Um, Obviously, that's going to be scattered across different institutions. So first off, which types of classes are you teaching? You mentioned that you're doing uh, ancient uh, civilizations and all that, but do you do you find yourself teaching a lot of the same types of classes, or do you have a pretty diverse portfolio? Well, right now I teach seven, and six of them are different. 
a lot. Yeah. But I've taught them a lot. So it's not like I have a lot of prep work. So it's really just setting it up on Blackboard, you know, every in between every semester. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what I try to do is, you know, the lectures I give today, you know, I'll make notes on them about things I might want to change so that when I'm prepping for next year, you know, I can go through my old notes and just, you know, see if I really want to change it or not. Or, you know, find something fresh to put in there. Because, you know, when you teach the same thing over and over again, it gets boring too. And if you yeah. get bored, it's going to be boring for your students. So you, you have to spruce it up a little bit. So some of the things I teach, like I, typically I teach U.S. history one or two somewhere. You know, either I teach always at ECC U.S. history one. I may not always teach at a Buff State every semester, um, but I'll, I'll typically have one of them you know, somewhere during the year. And then I teach world civilizations one and two at both schools. Um, foundations of early civilizations. Um, uh, Western civilization since 1500, focusing mainly on Europe. 20th century Europe. And then um, the South and the Civil War, I teach. Um, and sometimes I, ECC, every fall I teach World War II as well. So I may not teach them all every semester. But sometimes, you know, I have them at two different schools. Sometimes I might have it at one school. Sometimes it might be a semester break between one time teaching it and the next time. But it is a constant flow. And I try not to change the book at all. So I don't have to change the lectures to, you know, meet a new book just for, you know, I've been trying to mix in. The only time I might change things now is if they come out with something that's OER, you know, the free books. Yeah. For students. And there really isn't a ton for history other than, you know, your basic gen ed, U.S. history one and two, maybe, you know, um, European history or something like that. Yeah. Um, So they don't have a lot of diversity into that. But the U.S. history one, I was just looking at one in Flat World. Um, It's not free, but it's pretty cheap by Gillum, who used to be an advisor for the History Channel. Uh, and he, I believe he's still a professor at Arizona State. He had a book called The American Experiment that I used a lot. And I really liked it. But then the publisher, you know, with all the publishers merging together, they d- dropped books. And, you know, that was one of the ones he dropped. But I saw it's on here. So I might bring that in next semester instead of having, because I use Norton pretty much for everything now. Um, instead of going with a Fauner book, I might switch over to that. I haven't decided yet. But, you know, I have everything laid out, so it's just minor modifications usually. Mm-hmm. Um, but I I used to be just strictly U.S. history. You know, the first 10 years was strictly U.S. history. And then he asked me one day, you know, do you want to teach us? And next thing you know, that's all I teach sometimes. <laughs> you know, so usually at Buff State, I know a year ahead of time what I'm teaching. And at ECC... It's the same thing every semester. It doesn't change. The dates, the times, the classroom, same thing every semester. So I kind of know ahead of time what I'm going to be doing. So I, you know, if I know I want to revise something, I know I have enough time to do it. And then over the summer, I teach online at Buff State too. So, And it's usually classes I've already taught online before. Yeah, okay. A lot and- of work, though. <laughs> like, yeah, it is, it is a lot of work. Yeah. Um, back when I was in my 
full-time adjuncting days. Yeah, I, I usually, I think my hardest term, I want to say I was doing eight or nine courses and it was, it's, it's insanity trying yeah. to keep up with, with all of that. It's uh, just not, it's just not possible. <laughs> I'd be able to survive that one. Erie Community College asked me if I wanted to teach political science this semester. And I'm like, no, you can't, ask me, <laughs> you can't ask me a month before the semester starts. If I want to teach something new, you know, right. especially something that I, you know, you kind of have an understanding because U.S. history and political science go together. You know, yeah. But to get deep into it so that the students get any benefit out of it, you know, there's no way you can do that in a month. So, right. So I'd rather turn it down than, you know, have a horrible class and students be totally disappointed. But Yeah. Yeah, I agree. For the um, for the free texts, um, I'm wondering, uh, and I'm, you know, I'm not here to do a sales pitch or anything, but have you ever looked at the American Yop? No. It's um, it's a free textbook that has been put together by uh, a bunch of people. Actually, they've got a pretty large uh, board of um, board of editors with some fairly big names on there. But it's kind of an attempt to create a standardized. Um, what do you call it? Uh, survey level textbook, kind of like the phoner ones and all of that. Um, but it's free. And then they also have a supplemental uh, reader of primary sources that are tied to the chapters and all that. So right. it's actually it's actually not bad. It's uh, you know, I, um, I had some suspicions of it at first, but I've read through it a few times. And it's, you know, for for a survey level textbook, it's pretty good. So is that yeah. through OER or no? It's OER, yeah. It's it's okay. totally free. Uh, it's just the website is just American Yop uh, Y A W P dot org dot com. I forget exactly what it is, but just you know, just Google American Yop and it'll it'll come up. Oh, cool. It's uh, yeah, it's pretty good. We haven't built. The, um, I've been thinking about if we should try to use those in SNHU's survey classes. Uh, right. We're not. We're still using a. It's a built-in textbook in the courses that we use now, but. Right. Um, We've been kind of think. I've been trying to think of if that would be worth pursuing, but I haven't done anything about it yet. But someday, maybe. So, yeah. Anyway, I, I think especially you know, with the cost of school so high, mm-hmm. I mean, these textbooks are out of out of price for some some of these people. You know, oh yeah. My Ameri- my African American history textbook. I got. I have the cheapest one, and it's. I think it's really the best one out of the three that are available. But the next one's seventy five dollars more. And it's like. You know, yeah. How can you justify that? It's crazy. It is crazy. Yeah. It's all copyright and you know all these other things because most of them you can't even get as a textbook anymore unless you buy the ebook first. So right. It, it's just a it's a weird system they're getting into now, and it's yeah not, it's it not is. student friendly. No, and it's it's kind of the same. Well, I mean, it's basically the same problem as, I mean, college tuition's skyrocketing. It's that, you know, the stuff's getting paid for through financial aid. And so, you know, the government's paying for it. There's not a lot of motivation to try to keep costs down, uh, even though it would be in everybody's best interest to do so. But there isn't. And so I think it all just kind of goes together. So the textbook prices are out of control, just like tuition costs are out of control. And it sounds like the pharmaceutical industry. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah. So, Sounds like a, a lot of a lot of industries these days. Yeah, absolutely. Did you have any uh, kind of last thoughts on any of the stuff we've been talking about so far before we move into the recommendations? No, not really. I mean, I think it's a great field to get into. And one of the things I tell students, you know, because you always get 
you know, those people are telling you why major in history, you know, what are you going to do with it? You know, the skills you learn as a historian can apply to any other field. There's a lot of people that get bachelors in history that go on to law school, to go on to their MBA. You know, people look at the skills that we develop as essential for what they want in their own fields. You know, and it's like you don't need a bachelor's in the field you ultimately want to go into. You need a bachelor's that's going to help build your skills up so that you can be productive in that field. You know, so you don't necessarily always need to major in like business administration or political science or, you know, the, the, those types of things to go on to be successful in those industries. You can do something you like or something that interests you. You, know, you could always do the history of business. You know, there, there's tons of things you could do with this degree that will help you in a ton of other, other fields. So that's what I try to tell everybody. You know, if you like it, do it because you'll probably do much better than you will taking courses that you don't want to do, but somebody recommends that you get into that field. You know, stick with what you love and not what you want to make money in so much. Yeah, that resonates with me. I, I think I've told this story in other episodes of the podcast, but when I was in, when I was an undergrad, I was a math major for a good, the first couple of years. And that all changed when I took a history of math class. It right. was, it was a history class. It was offered through the math department, but it was the history of math. And I found myself about halfway through the semester realizing that I liked the history part better than the math part. <laughs> and so then I just started taking history classes and just within a couple of terms, I just kind of morphed into a history major and just left math behind. <laughs> so yeah. here I am. And it's a huge shift in terms of, you know, how you're thinking and how you approach things. I mean, if you enjoy it, you don't mind going and sitting through an hour and 20 minute class, you know, or yeah. spending five hours online doing something, you know, you like it, you know, you, you get excited about sitting down and learning more about it. And that's really what you want driving you every day. You know, you don't want to wake up and say, oh, I got to go to work or I got to go to class and you know, you struggle through it and get nothing out of it. You want to enjoy it to gain the most out of it so that you can, you know, do more later on. So, and the other thing I tell kids is, you know, everybody always thinks, oh, college is the best four years of your life. It should be just the opposite. You know, you should work as hard as you can during college to put you in a position so the next 40 years are the best years of your life. Yeah. And they don't get it. But, you know, if you can get one or two people in a classroom that, you know, makes sense to them, you know, you're, you think you're hitting the target. You know, you want more people to think that way. But, you know, I always looked at college, you know, it was like a full-time job. You know, you went yeah. you did eight hours a day or whatever you broke it up to, but it was a full-time job and you had to meet certain goals, you know, or else why are you there? Why are you wasting money? So that's how I always try to push it on, you know, push it on people. But, you know, when you advise people on what to do and how to do it, you know, change your, your perspective of things. You know, don't think of it, you know, this is just a natural process. I go from high school to college, I get a job. You know, use college as a launching pad for wherever else you want to go. You don't even know where to go. I mean, how many people when they're 18 years old know what jobs are out there? Right. So, you know, it's just a lot, you know. And I think you could use history, you can use any of the social sciences to get anywhere you want, really. You just got to put in the time and the effort to do it. Agreed. 
Yes, that's an interesting way to uh, think about it. I I like the phrasing uh, that you did about, um, you know, don't think of it as the best four years of your life. Think of it as, you know, setting you up for the best 40 years of your life. That's a really yeah. cool way to think about it. Yeah. And I, I think if you do that, you know, you can have fun in college, you know, and if you think of it as a full-time job, it's eight hours a day. You still have 16 hours. Yeah. You, you know, you can sleep for 10 of them and still have six hours to hang out with your friends. So <laughs> it's not like, you know, you, you're limiting yourself to having no friends in college. You know, you still can have a great social life, but you got to commit, you know, eight hours a day or six hours a day or whatever you need to, you know, to get the most out of it, you know, because what's going to differentiate you from the 8,000 other applications, you know, that all have bachelor's degrees, you know, join clubs, get involved in other things, you know, become a, a part of the campus, and you'll, you'll always have ties and relationships, you know, with the people that are there, that work there, that go there. You know, it, it's a much better thing than just going, studying. You know, you have to make it, you know, worthwhile. And some of the connections you make, I mean, my getting a job at Buff State was because of the relationship I built up with all the professors there. You know, and it wasn't, I didn't even have to apply. I don't even think I ever gave them a resume. You know, so it's just, they knew me well enough by that point. And they knew the quality of work you do. So they're more than happy to help you out. And maybe it's not a job, but maybe it's a recommendation. So, you know, and if you fool around all four years, what are you going to get out of it? You know, you get a degree, but that's, you know, that's not what you're really there for. That's right. It sounds like I'm lecturing my daughters. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like I need to do better at school now. (laughs) Sorry, Dad. (laughs) You're forgiven. Okay. All right. Well, do you have anything you'd like to recommend for us today? Well, the only thing I'm doing, I, I just got a book actually the other day. It's a 1854 version of the history of the Crusades by Major Proctor. Um, one, of the, one of the things I like to do, you know, obviously we focus on modern, you know, scholarly works, but I like to go back and see some of the older stuff too, to get an idea mm-hmm. of how they've evolved over time. You know, we talk about that, like with the, the capstone project, you have the historiography. You have to understand the this historical schools of thought. Well, this is kind of doing that. You, know, you want to see what, you know, the perception of, you know, like in this case, the Crusades, what it was like in the 19th century. You know, is it different from today? What kind of sources were they relying on versus what we have available today? And, you know, why things have changed. I, I like to do that. Like even with the Civil War, you know, probably a third of my library is stuff that was written, you know, post 20th century. You're, you know, prior to the 20th century. So, you know, things that were written from 1865, maybe in 1900, 1910, somewhere around there. I like to read that stuff because a lot of those people actually lived through it too. So their, their perceptions are different. And with the Crusades, you know, the, the perception of the Crusades has changed constantly. You know, it could depend on, you know, are we going through, you know, a, uh, religious revival movement at the time and you know people are writing more about you know christianity and the benefit it does or is it something where christianity isn't you know it's popular and they're they're really getting into the crusades as you know something that was a negative so i like to get all those different perspectives so i'm reading that now plus i'm reading you know some modern crusaders stuff now too because i do a lot with the crusades and the military orders um so i tried to build that into all my other reading stuff. But just on, on my desk, I have the history of World War II in Buffalo, 
<laughs> Europe, the modern era, the sword versus the scimitar. And then another Crusader book by Dan Jones. So, I mean, it's just, there's always something to read. And I, I bet you, I, out of all the books I have, I probably, 20% of them, I've read the whole thing. You know, you just yeah. have parts of them, you know? Yeah. And some, you know, the binding's not even broken yet. But I've read <laughs> you know, maybe two paragraphs or two chapters. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, yeah, that's one of the dirty little secrets of the historian is that we we read a lot, but we don't read all of anything. Uh, <laughs> we we just mine what mine a book for what we need and uh, move on to the next one. And if you do read a full book, it's probably just for leisure. Yeah, not for whatever you're working on, because if it's for your, what you're working on, you're you're not using your time efficiently. That's right. That's why they have indexes. Yep. That's right. <laughs> and now with ebooks, it's 10 times easier. Yes. Uh, and I've been pushing people use ebooks as much as you can. You know, Same. Use yeah. Digital resources. It saves you so much time. And if you use a system like OneNote, you know, you can copy and paste it and, you know, it will put in also where it came from, you know, and it's always there available to you online. So you don't have notebooks. You're not carrying textbooks around. You're not. You know, why do you want to do that? You know, you have one little tablet with your laptop and you can have a million things at your fingertips. So I I, right. I have a lot of older students that resist that. But once they get into one, they start realizing, you know, the benefit of it. So, yeah, I, that, that was me. It was at one point where I was like, ebooks. No, I need to have the, the feel of a real book, the smell of a real book. And then I started reading ebooks. And I was like, oh, yeah, never mind. I'm fine. <laughs> And you still like real books. I mean, yeah, yeah exactly. I still like to have them, but I, so the, I, yeah, there's only so much room. I like being able to hold a Kindle with, you know, 150 books on the Kindle yeah. in my, in my, you know, in my bag instead of a, a massive backpack full of heavy books. There's oh, so many benefits to it. So, absolutely. Yep. Yeah, I'm a convert to the ebooks also. It's um, cheaper. Yeah. Yeah. For the most <laughs> right. part. Not well, a lot, but. It's cheaper. So, yeah, that sounds really cool. So my recommendation this week is actually a band, a music band. It's a band called Sabaton, which is a it's a Swedish heavy metal band, (laughs) which just (laughs) sounds it sounds kind of disastrous. But it's actually pretty interesting from a historical perspective, because this band, Sabaton, their all of their songs are about historical events. And they are all about um, World War One, World War Two, various historical conflicts like that. And so they, a lot of the songs are about like the heroism of people on the battlefields and the misery of warfare and stuff like that. And so they've got a, an entire album, for example, on World War One, and a lot of the songs are all about the misery of marching off to war and marching off to the the trenches with machine guns and all of that. That's great. And then outside and, and the music itself, it's it's heavy metal, but it's very nineteen eighties ish heavy metal. So if if, you, if yeah. it's yeah, it's not it's not a whole lot of, you know, screaming and indecipherable guitars and all that. It's it's kind of like um I don't know. It's a little more metal-ish than like say something like Def Leppard or something, but it has the same kind of eighties vibe. And me as an eighties child, that really appeals to me. So I'm that 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 makes them kind of stand out even more in my mind. Um, but they, in addition to having the the music about 
the historical events and all of that. They also host a YouTube channel where they release little mini documentaries on the topic of their songs. And so they've got like episodes of, they've got like YouTube little documentaries about tank warfare and World War II and stuff like that. So it's, it's, it's really interesting. And so, um, I first heard about this when one of my colleagues pointed it out to me and I, and I told him that, boy, this really sounds like a bunch of, you know, history grad students got drunk and dared each other to form a band or something. And he said, you know, go look at pictures of them. And I look at pictures and videos of them. And now I'm pretty much confident that these probably are history grad students that got drunk and dared each other to form a band because they look just like history grad students. And I can't find much. I mean, doing a quick search, I just found out about them a few days ago, so I haven't really done any in-depth research on them or anything. But right. the limited stuff I've been able to find online, I haven't really found much about their background as why they're interested in all these history, historical events and all that. But it's so I'll just chalk that up as kind of one of those mysteries of life. I don't know why Sabaton is so interested in history, but they are. And so anyone that's interested in history should go check it out. Um, you know, the heavy metal aspect of it isn't as bad as it could be. So uh, hopefully it won't... Uh, drive people away too quickly because they're worth they're worth checking out some of these images are awesome though yeah they're all standing around a battle map (laughs) yeah (laughs) or in front of a tank and uh... (laughs) yeah right (laughs) yeah and and their um their concerts they'll bring out like artillery pieces and like fire off (laughs) blanks and stuff it's really it sounds like quite an experience and if they ever come to town i'm definitely going to go find them because that that would be (laughs) that that would just give me stories to tell yeah, maybe we should petition them to come over here and tour. Yeah, no kidding. I hope they do. That'd be amazing. So that, so my recommendation is Sabaton. So uh, with that said, thank you for joining me today, Scott. Oh, anytime. It was fun. And thank you all for joining us today. This episode appears on the Working Historians podcast feed, and you can subscribe to that feed on any podcast app, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Lyceum, SoundCloud, or wherever else you prefer. That way you won't miss any episodes, and you'll continue to hear about all the other cool stuff that historians do with their lives. If you have any questions or comments for this or any of our other podcasts, send us a message to workinghistorians at gmail.com or through our Twitter feed at workhistorians. For Scott Black, I'm Rob Denning. Have a happy Halloween.